coming up. Can a lame duck prime minister rein in a cabinet at war? Plus, hands up who thinks they're ever going to get to retire. And look who's back. I'm ambitious for this country and I'm ambitious for our party. It's only Vince Cable. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading our end-of-term podcast. There is no such thing as an unsackable minister, according to Theresa May, which is strange, really, when you consider that her cabinet is full of unsackable ministers. This week, the Prime Minister read them the Riot Act, told them to fall into line, stop briefing against each other, get on with your jobs. Coming from the woman who led them into this catastrophic mess in the first place, it has had, as you may imagine absolutely no impact. So as Britain's strong and stable government falls apart like a cheap MFI bookcase, all Theresa May had to do was get through her last Prime Minister's questions before the summer break. She did this by ignoring every question she was asked. The Chancellor said this week that some public service servants are overpaid. Given the Prime Minister has had to administer a slapdown to her squabbling cabinet, does she think the, Pri- the Chancellor was actually talking about her own ministers? The right honourable gentleman seems to think that it's possible to go around promising people more money and promise that nobody is ever going to have to pay for it. Well, we're going to get a, an end-of-term report uh, this time from uh, Robert Meakin. Uh, Robert, it's a bit like a soap opera. Boris Johnson hates David Davis. David Davis hates Boris Johnson. Both of them hate Philip Hammond. Hammond's had enough of people bad-mouthing him, so he bad-mouthed them on television and told them to shut up. And in the middle of this, mute for the best part of a week is the Prime Minister, who is being urged by some people to sack all these troublemakers. If she walked into the Cabinet room and said, I'm sacking all the troublemakers, there'd be nobody left. She says there's no such thing as an unsackable minister. Well, try sacking Boris Johnson or Philip Hammond and see how long your government lasts. Yeah, it's uh, it's the Tory party at its very worst. You've, this is a Tory party that's come out of a disastrous general election. This is a Tory party at the beginning of extremely difficult, unpredictable, damaging Brexit negotiations. So put all that into the mix and you see why there's such uh, discontent in the ranks. Then you add on to that powerful personalities like Boris Johnson, like David Davis, Philip Hammond all being at loggerheads in the mix, while Theresa May, as you say, is the lamed up Prime Minister stuck in the middle with no real authority to put a foot down anywhere. That's why we have this, uh, this chaos presently. I mean, it's hard to think that the general election was only six weeks ago and we are in this mess already. Those of you listening with long memories may find this all very reminiscent of the early 1990s, where the Tories were officially in power but they were so busy fighting each other like rats in a sack that they forgot they were meant to be running the country and voters saw that and acted upon it now there are two significant differences this time first brexit this huge looming potential catastrophe and once again this week we've been told that the talks don't appear to have gone terribly well there still seems to be this big gulf between what britain expects and what the eu wants And there is also the fact that 20-odd years ago, when the then-Conservative government was imploding, there was a ruthlessly organised opposition waiting to exploit every Tory feud and standing there saying, look at us, don't we look professional and ready to take over? This time around, I mean, I think the reality is we have to remember that 
they know that the prime minister is definitely on the way out. And that breeds this uncertainty and this bad behaviour and these turf wars. And I think that's really at the crux of this, that Theresa May's position is so much weaker than it was a couple of months ago. Most of these uh, Tory cabinet ministers expected to be part of a government that uh, was boasting a large, comfortable uh, Tory majority in the House of Commons and that they were going to proceed with Brexit negotiations, which were inevitably going to be difficult and hazardous. But put into that the fact now that Theresa May is only at best a temporary prime minister, that is the root cause of this often ludicrous behaviour. How have we ended up in this situation in that case where seemingly rational people in Westminster are now saying with a with a straight face that Theresa May can stay on in Downing Street until the end of the Brexit process in sort of March, April of 2019. She has clearly got no authority to stop her cabinet hurling abuse at each other. And as we saw with school funding this week and with that DUP deal, at the moment, every time she confronts a problem, she just throws a billion pounds at it. She's going to run out of billion pounds in bags to throw at problems at some stage. Where has this idea come from that, oh, yes, no, she could definitely stay for another couple of years? Well, it's almost as if she's being kept prisoner, essentially. I mean... Understandably, it's been suggested after the election results she was ready to walk and then realise what the consequences could be, namely that Corbyn could in fact find a way into Downing Street. Uh, so it, it, there is a stay of execution here. She knows damn well that the party, as Tony Blair, I think, put it earlier this week, are going to push her off the ledge uh, pretty soon. But in the meantime, it suits them for now for her to be the fall girl, so to speak, the person who's at the forefront of the Brexit negotiations for now, because they know it, they, they know it's probably an inconvenient time to get rid of her. But there's no, no doubt that, that that is going to occur, I think, sooner than they're saying. This is the thing. To be a leader, you have to be able to lead. And at the moment, she is being led. When she, when she sits them down in the cabinet and says, stop all this briefing, stop all this rowing, get on with your jobs... Everyone goes, oh, she's read them the Riot Act. It won't make any difference. You can't run a government like that. And you can't have a prime minister who is there simply because people in her own party say, at the moment, you're the least worst option. Your main positive attribute is that you're marginally less unbearable in this job than either Boris Johnson, David Davis or Philip Hammond. At any time, this would be unsustainable and I, I appreciate I'm starting to sound like a stuck record but surely at this time in the middle of these Brexit negotiations you cannot have a lame duck prime minister who as you say everybody knows is on the way out in charge for the entire period of those talks. But the Tory party is also in a state of confusion and fear after that shock uh, outcome at the general election, there is a, a genuine fear that Jeremy Corbyn could be prime minister if if chaos ensued in the Tory party. I mean, chaos in terms of they dump Theresa May and are then forced to have another general election. That, I think, is what they're scared of. And that's why we have this rather ridiculous situation saying, you stay in place. We can't stand you. You've completely let the party down, completely cocked up at the general election. But you're staying here for the time being to get us through at least part of this mess. It's just about political survival. And, and I say with confusion on top, because they're really not sure what the best outcome would be. If they thought right now that, OK, we can get rid of Theresa May, 
get in a new get in a new leader and our seats are safe there is going to be a Tory government for the next three four years of course they would do it but they're just not sure that getting rid of her pressing the eject button they're, they're uncertain whether that could in fact let Corbyn in So, after all the drama of the last few months, and God knows there's been plenty, we can now settle down to a few weeks' peace and quiet, with no nasty surprises. The approach I'm setting out today is the responsible and fair course of action. Failing to act now in light of compelling evidence of demographic pressures would be irresponsible and place an extremely unfair burden on younger generations. A nasty surprise there from the Work and Pensions Secretary David Gork. Bad news for the six million of us, myself included, by the way, who, aged between 39 and 47, have just been given a lovely summer gift, working even longer. Um, Robert, I don't know if, if you remember the general election. It was, you know, six weeks ago. But one of the reasons the Tories didn't do as well as they were expecting was because they were aiming so much pain at pensioners, their core supporters, the people who turn out in droves to back the Tory party. Now they've decided that the no-fun gun should be aimed at the very age group where statistically you are most likely to move towards supporting the Conservative, people in their 40s. Now, look, almost certainly the pension age is going to have to keep rising, but given how many times these retirement ages have been changed in the last few years... Why would anybody in that age group who's just been told to do another year in work, why would anybody believe that this is the definitive answer, that they're not going to find out in two, three years' time, oh, actually, no, you're going to have to work till 70? No, it's a very surprising tactic, to put it mildly. I know we discussed during the election uh, campaign when they were really hammering the baby boom generation that's propped up Tories you know, for, for the last th- few decades in government on and off. And now, now, as you say, they turn to that next generation, the people essentially going into early middle age who are considered to be often transitional Tory supporters and saying, saying to them, I'm sorry, but you are going to have to work longer and harder than we imagined. I mean, on the flip side, I appreciate that the, the, just the, the way the British economy works, and it, there are things that need to be paid for. And literally, we cannot necessarily have, afford anymore to have a workforce retiring at 65 and being around for another potentially 25 years. But it's a very, it's a very, very difficult one, and essentially impossible one to sell from the government's point of view. The reason that's always cited for raising the retirement age is that life expectancy is rising as well. We're all living longer and therefore we have to work longer to pay for our retirement. The only problem, and again, this makes the timing of this so interesting, is that 24 hours before this announcement about putting up the retirement age for this age group, there was a report that said that for the first time in about a century, the rate of increase in life expectancy is slowing down. And guess what possible factor the report identified? The impact of austerity on the health service and on social care. Now, look, if you're reasonably well off and in reasonably good health, you won't lose out from this change. You'll work another year, but you'll probably live another three or four years at the other end longer than you might have expected. But if you are a poorer person in poorer health you may well have had a year of retirement taken off you that actually you really could have done with yeah and it really just shows at the moment how the tide is so against you know, the current government 
Because I would certainly presume, I'm sure, I'm sure you would have certainly presumed that we thought, yes, we're all getting older each generation. And so as, you know, a bitter pill that this was to swallow, you thought, well, it's sort of inevitable. They're making us work slightly longer because we're going to live longer. Then, woe and behold, the same week we find out, actually, that's not true anymore. We might actually be dying sooner. Still, in these troubled times, it is nice to see a familiar older face. I'm ambitious for this country and I'm ambitious for our party. In difficult times, we've shown enormous resilience. But I now believe that we can fight our way back, break through, and make an enormous success of our party and eventually in government. Sir Vince Cable is back at the age of 74. The new Liberal Democrat leader is not exactly a fresh-faced unknown. Unopposed from a crowded field of 12, count them, 12 MPs, Vince takes over from Tim Farron, who resigned to spend more time with his tiny, tiny majority. Uh, He had a few parting words as he stood down. Between us, we have stopped this great party drifting into oblivion. We've given it its heart, given it its purpose, rebuilt it, and now we are on firm ground. What happens next is what matters most, and I am certain our best years are ahead of us. Uh, Robert, Vince Cable will lead a band of 12 MPs, a total that Tim Farron increased by 50%, but that wasn't enough to save him. And I would just say that Vince needs to watch his back here because the Liberal Democrats have a bit of a habit of chucking their leaders overboard. They did it to Charles Kennedy. They did it to Ming Campbell. They've done it to Tim Farron. I'm beginning to suspect that the Lib Dems might have been the nasty party all along. Oh, yeah. I mean, they are they're, they're far more brutal than people give them um, credit for. I mean, I remember sort of the Charles Kennedy saga, for instance, was, uh, you know, it was a very sad state of affairs, but ruthless the way they dispatched him. And then Ming Campbell, as you say, which was essentially a fear that he just looked too old for the job. And let's remember, he was younger than Vince Cable is now. And he will face the same problems that Tim Farron has struggled with for two years. And, and the biggest problem the Lib Dems have is getting people to notice them. When you are the fourth biggest party at Westminster... It's hard to get on television. It's hard to get called to ask a question in the House of Commons. I think he's entitled to four questions at PMQs every year. The rest of the time, he just has to chance his arm with all the other backbenchers. He perhaps needs to start creating his own luck. Get out of the Westminster bubble. Find ways to get the Lib Dems talked about. Do things that the likes of you and I can't resist commenting on to get them noticed to make people remember that the Lib Dems are still around. Yeah, they, they do. I mean, they've had, a, you know, an appalling time in terms of, you know, Parliament in, in recent years, obviously destroyed during the 2015 election, come back, but only moderately uh, last month. Uh, yeah, they do need to think out of the box and you, they do, do need to sort of get out of the Westminster bubble, try and make an impact, try and carve out an identity as the centre party, as the party. And they, they are, I think they are going to very much say we are the anti-Brexit party. If that's their strategy, they need to be very, very clear on it. There's plenty of people in the country who are anti-Brexit, even if it is going to happen somehow in the end. But I do think that needs to be a, a clear starting point for them. I think, as you say, they need to start hitting different parts of the country where they were, where they were previously 
obviously strong. You know, I remember the Liberal Democrats having plenty of seats in the northwest of England, across the Midlands. I think I think it's far more suits cable to get out there doing that than being stuck in the House of Commons, as you say, waiting for John Burko to give him the nod and let him have two minutes in the House of Commons chamber while he's being, while he's being heckled by everyone around him. So we come to the end of a political season which has continued the by now entrenched tradition of surprise results that nobody saw coming. And if there is one positive effect of all this, it does show our extraordinary resilience, our ability to cope with just about anything. Robert, if I can summarise what a terrible state we find ourselves in, uh, we are being governed by a woman with no authority, with no majority, propped up by a handful of people who have, let's say, interesting views on modern life, a prime minister who wanders around like a sentient robot who has just discovered the utter misery of her existence and is silently pleading with everyone she meets to put her out of her misery. At the election that we never needed to have, 40% of people backed a man who could not win the confidence of three quarters of his own MPs. And internationally, we are six months into a US administration led by a compulsive liar who could, for all we know, be a Russian stooge. And all the way through this, we just shrug our shoulders and carry on. The bar for what is considered unacceptable behaviour is now astonishingly high. Donald Trump's son has admitted colluding with a foreign power to influence the outcome of an election. His father is having secret chats with the Russian president with no officials present. Back home, the government keeps finding previously hidden bags filled with around a billion pounds, enough to keep itself going for another few days, like some sort of compulsive gambler looking for a fiver down the back of a sofa. And the opposition rather than actually opposing the government, has gone back to opposing itself and is busy organising some sort of Stalinist purge. This is the new normal, and we just shrug our shoulders and carry on. Yeah, and we used to moan about 2016. You've got to say that 2017 certainly rose to the challenge, didn't it? Well, yeah, you know, we got to the end of 2016 and said, well, that was a bloody awful year, wasn't it? Glad to see the back of that. Thank God that's over. Next year can't be any worse than that. And at this rate, by 2022, we're all going to be living in caves and eating rats. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 2017 came out all guns blazing. So I don't think we should be in any hurry for 2018 to arrive. I am reminded of... The scenes outside the Grenfell Tower after the fire there where politicians, you know, didn't do anything to help the people affected by that disaster in the days afterwards. In fact, politicians seem to actively hinder their lives. And it was ordinary people who made a real difference. It was ordinary people who turned up with food and water and offers of places to stay and shuttling people backwards and forwards. And politicians stood around and did nothing. And the depressing conclusion you could come to is does politics make a difference i always used to dismiss people who said it doesn't matter who's in power the outcome's always the same but i'm beginning to think they might have a point yeah it's been in all seriousness obviously a terrible terrible year we think of what happened in manchester we think of the terrorist attack in london then the tragedy at grenville and you say what really stands out there is the way the communities responded, the way the people of Manchester rallied around, the way the people of London rallied around. And that was you know, a truly moving, impressive spectacle to see, to see the way people responded. You say about the politicians on the flip side, Grenville being a pretty much the case in point, 
my goodness, you know, a number of politicians did not come out of that at all. Well, we had a prime minister who simply didn't know how to cope whatsoever. In fact, in terms of Grenville, I'm still, I still feel both parties don't behave all that well, particularly because you, critics would argue the Labour Party have sometimes essentially tried to use the tragedy for some political advantage at times. It's been a very sorry state of affairs to watch. Does politics still make a difference? I would, I would still would continue to be an optimist and say it can do. It often, often disappoints, but that is what we have got. We have democracy. We have we trust in this system. We, they, they are politicians are capable of surprising us in a good way. Sometimes it's just all too rare. A little hope for the future as we draw to a conclusion. Uh, finally, you may have seen that photograph of the EU and UK negotiating teams at the start of the second phase of the Brexit talks at the start of this week. There were the EU representatives with their huge files stuffed with paper and legal argument. And there we were with a good old British notepad and pencil. Now, according to one report, Robert, David Davis is now storing all of his files and his notes in a super secure case that is, in fact, a Faraday cage designed to resist any nefarious attempt by pesky foreigners to scan his files or hack into his computer. Reportedly, he's even been forced by officials to surrender his Apple Watch because they were worried that some shifty foreigner would secretly activate the microphone to learn all about our finely honed Brexit plans that are so secret that none of us know what they are. Honestly, I don't think that our European friends would need Superman-style X-ray vision to find out what lurks in the darkest recesses of our ministers' minds. Hang around in Westminster, they'll tell anybody. Yeah, I'd also say if, if, if you hacked into the government's current Brexit plan, I, I'm not sure you'd get a, a coherent set of paragraphs, to be honest. It's just a blank sheet of paper with anybody got any ideas. A few question marks on there, you know, a bit of doodling from David Davis, perhaps. Item one, stick it to Johnny Foreigner. Item two, profit. Item three, leader by 2018. You know, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure there's going to be that all that much of use to us. So, our political masters head off to the seaside and we head off to our accountants to figure out how to pay for that retirement that is probably never, ever going to come. That's it for now. And we end, as ever, by gracelessly begging you for a review or rating on iTunes. I am assured that they genuinely do help. A reminder that there's always more on Twitter at Paul Osborne and our thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.